Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 22 through 24 this morning. Uh, Next week, we'll be on to the husbands, and then we'll linger there for a while. Uh, And as you're turning there, just a reminder where we've been. Uh, So, from before creation... God began to do work on behalf of the believer in electing and choosing them before the foundation of the earth. Uh, We've seen how Christ took on human flesh to pay the price uh, for our sin to become the sacrifice. We've seen how the Holy Spirit has brought about new life in people who are spiritually dead, reconciled Jews and Gentiles together. And so in this new creation, in this new man, how are we to live? That's the section we're in now. And and we've already seen how to relate to each other in the church, how we're to live, how to build each other up in love, and uh, how we're to live holy lives. And now we're in the context of the family. So how are we to live as new creations in the context of the family? Ephesians 5.22 Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And so as we consider this morning, how are we to honor God in our families and in the relationships, uh, husband and wife uh, relationship? We wouldn't know that if God didn't tell us, if God didn't have a design. God didn't throw us marriage like we would throw a a four-year-old a a gun and say, a loaded gun and say, figure out how to use this. But God gave us the gift of marriage. In fact, all society is standing upon, uh, depends on families, depends on marriages. And as families fall, a society falls. But God didn't give us the institution of marriage and say nothing about it. But He's given us clear instruction uh, in His Word. And last week we looked at uh, how wives are to be Filled with the Spirit, submit to your own husbands as you submit to Christ. And we focused heavily on the motivation of the wife. If this is going to be a voluntary submission uh, to a husband, like the text says, where's the motivation going to come from? And in verse 21, we see that our submission is out to be out of reverence for Christ. If the point is your husband, you'll just quit doing it. 
Because in, in a lot of ways, your husband uh, does not live up to what God has called him to. Uh, wives, you've married sinful men who fall short. And so if your role is dependent upon your husband's performance, well, then you'll just be done before you begin. But it's out of reverence for Christ. That's what we looked at last week. And as we begin this week, uh, uh, and if you look at your notes, uh, we have the same notes from last week. We saw the power is from the Spirit. The power to do this is you need to be filled with the Spirit. The attitude is one of worship and thankfulness. Uh, The only way this can be possible is out of a heart that sees God as good. He has a, he's a good designer, not a cruel designer. And, and the purpose is for Christ, and we looked at the command to submit. So now we're on the reason he gives in verse 23. And but before we just jump in, I want to say this. So and the talk is going around town, you've probably heard. Uh, June 3rd, there's going to be a a drag show story time. Uh, men dressed up as women. It's for all ages. Uh, that is going to meet at the Red Rooster coffee shop in town. And, and tomorrow there's a meeting with evangelical pastors over at Alders Gate. And we're considering, you know, what action we ought to take as churches and, and stand up. Uh, especially as we think of the children that are the innocent ones in in this regard. And so you can be praying about that meeting. We definitely want to be involved in that. Uh, I know churches have done different things throughout the country as this has come to their town. Uh, But if you're wondering if this is practical as we think about uh, what it means to be male and female, what it means to be a husband and a wife. It is practical uh, beyond what we can imagine. Uh, and so we'll keep you updated how, how we'll participate uh, in that. So let's look at the reason for why wives should submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 23 says, For which is going to give us the reason. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Uh, Paul's answer for the question as to why is because of something that is. You know, in the beginning, God is the one who spoke, and it was. God is the one who thought up marriage. And so it is a certain way. The reason is because of God's design and order in creation, the reality of how it is. That's His reason. And... 
we looked at this a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but I do want to remind uh, us of those who would say, no, we don't believe that this should be happening in marriages. We think this is uh, you know, cruel to wives and uh, that this is a sexist thing uh, to believe that wives should submit to husbands. The other view, the egalitarian view, makes an argument that headship is from the fall. It's a result of the fall that's to be overcome with the gospel. So that as you're filled with the Spirit, you shouldn't uh, have distinction in roles anymore. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at how headship is seen clearly in the Bible before the fall. I just want to remind you uh, a little bit. God created Adam first. God gave Adam the command to not eat from the tree of the garden. Adam names every animal. Uh, But there wasn't uh, a creature that was found that was fit for him. And so God creates a woman out of Adam's rib. Uh, So we see that she is from him. Uh, we see in Genesis 2 that she is for him. As soon as Eve is created, she's brought to him. And she's described as his helper. This is all before the fall. And we see the leadership that God and the responsibility God gave Adam before Genesis 3. Now, when we get to Genesis 3, uh, for example, if you have your Bibles, you can turn here. I just want to point out uh, a a few things. When we get to Genesis 3, uh, the serpent comes to deceive Eve, and in verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So the serpent comes and twists God's word and says, oh, you can't eat from these trees, huh? And she says, no, we can eat from every tree except the one in the middle. But then she says, you can't even touch it or we will die. Well, God never said that to Adam in chapter 2. He said, if you eat of it, you'll die. But here, Eve doesn't even have the clear command of God in her mind. Whose fault is that? Who did God give the command to? God gave the command to Adam. Adam is to lead his wife spiritually and tell her what God has said. And so we see Adam's failed leadership already. And so it's not a surprise uh, that 
well, in verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise. She took its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So the wife is leading at this point and gives the fruit to her husband. Now, is Adam responsible for this? Yes, Adam's responsible for this. That's why in verse 9, when God comes looking for them after the fall, what does he do? But the Lord God called to the man. He didn't come to Eve. He comes to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? See, God goes straight to Adam, the one who he gave the command. And he says, have you eaten of the tree I commanded you not to eat? And we see ultimate failure in leadership in verse 12. Rather than own his responsibility, the man said, the woman, so the first thing he does is blames his wife. The first sign of failed leadership is someone that won't take accountability for their own failure. Blames his wife. You might say, well, that's a bad thing. Well, it's a really bad thing because God said whoever eats of the tree will surely die. And so he puts his wife up as exhibit A for capital punishment. She's the one who gave me the fruit. And then he has the audacity and the pride to blame God, the woman whom you gave to be with me, the woman that he was supposed to lead. Now he's blaming God that this is his fault. But the point here is who is God dealing with in regards to the fall? God is dealing with the head of the house. He was dealing with Adam as a head in chapter 2. He's dealing with him as the head in chapter 3. In verse 16, as we see the result of the curse. He says, to the woman, he said, surely I'll multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. She's culpable as well. She sinned as well. And then he says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Essentially, he's saying that For now on, your sin, Eve, is going to be multiplied to every woman after you. And no longer is submission to a husband going to be naturally feel like a glad, good thing. But the default of the fallen sinful heart will be rebellion to God's design. It'll be contrary to her husband. 
Now, good thing in Ephesians, we see once there's a new creation, now there can be a redemption of the marriage. And then, though, it says, but he shall rule over you. So now, every man will begin to repeat Adam's failure. And that he will use his authority God gave him selfishly. All the authority given in headship to a husband is to to give himself, to provide for, to protect, to lead his wife for good. But now with this leadership, man in his sinful nature is going to tend to use that selfishly or just reject the role altogether and passively stand by as we saw Adam doing, Adam was supposed to rule over the animals, Adam and Eve are to rule over the beasts of the field, and as a beast comes to his wife, he passively stands back and lets the snake rule over his wife. And so we see the struggle in every marriage is going to be for a wife to rebel against the position God has put her in and be contrary to her husband or seek to usurp his position and the husband is going to be tempted to selfishly or passively participate in the role God has given him, all right? Verse 17 of Genesis 3. And to Adam he said... Because, if you didn't look at the text, you might think it says, because you ate of the fruit of the tree that I told you not to eat of, because that's what the command was. You might think that's what it says. But what it says is this, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you. His sin is that he gave up the position God has given him. He failed to do what God has called him to do in headship. That's what's spoken of first before he talks about the fruit. That doesn't mean husbands shouldn't listen to their wives. In fact, their wives are to be helpers. It's not good the man should be alone. The first time in all creation, everything is, is uh, the first six days. God speaks it, and it was, and it was good. And the first time he says it is not good, he says it is not good that man should be alone. So obviously, it doesn't mean you should never listen to your wife, but it does mean you should never Give up the position God has called you to, but you should seek to be faithful with Christ. We'll talk more about that next week. The point this week is to show that headship is by God's design. It's a reality from God. That's why in Romans 5, when Paul is talking about how sin came into the world, he says it came into the world through the one man, Adam. It doesn't say it came into the world through Eve, 
but it came through Adam. Once again, we see headship. In 1 Timothy 2.12, talking about uh, male leadership in the church, uh, here's how Paul says, says it to Timothy. He says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet in regards to having authority over a man in church is, is the context. Here's his argument. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So here you see the design of God as his argument. So those who want to say today uh, that the fall is the thing that brought this headship into being, my question is, is then why does he seed it in creation before the fall? And, and then he says, the woman was deceived, uh, the woman was, or, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. You might say, well, how wasn't Adam deceived? How come he says Eve was deceived, but not Adam? Here's how not. Adam knew what was right. God gave him the clear command. When he ate of that fruit, he ate not by being tricked. He ate by rebellion. And his wife, when the beast came to, uh, when the snake came to deceive her, and God had put someone in her life to protect her from it, he failed. And she was deceived. Once again, the point is, this is the way it is by God's design. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and himself its Savior. What does head mean? There's been much argument as, as people have tried to reverse the teaching on this. You know, they tried to say, well, head just means source. It doesn't mean authority. Well, there's problems with this, and the problem is the command in the context is to submit which has to do with a, a ranking in authority, not value. The husband and wife are equal in value, but it has to do with a ranking in authority within the marriage. Also, when this word is used in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, in verse 22, I'll, I'll begin in reading verse 21, Listen how you can see uh, authority being the way it's being used. Uh, so far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So he's speaking of Christ, and he's saying all authority is put under his feet, and it says he's given as head. And so we see that the meaning of headship is the design of the leadership uh, of the family in, in our context. Also, I just want to point out one other place where Paul brings this up. I don't want to get sidetracked for long on this. Uh, but in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, uh, when, 
the topic of head coverings comes up. We're not going to get into that this morning. Uh, but the issue is uh, a submissive wife and, and having a symbol that she's in God's design uh, with, within God's uh, family and within the church. And here's how he argues for headship in verse 3. He says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The authority of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. The head of Christ is God. And so there's a lot of debate out there whether you can look at the Trinity and learn something about the family. And, and a person must definitely be careful not to push this too far. But the point seems to be in 1 Corinthians 11.3 in referring to Christ having a head over Him, God, uh, is that submission... Uh, for, for someone to say that submission is a degrading thing, one would have to see Christ in a degrading position. Now, it's important to understand that when you speak of the Trinity, uh, Denny Burke uh, points, pointed this out, gave me these terms. There's the eminent Trinity, which is the Trinity throughout all of time, where Christ shares equal authority with the Father for all eternity, in eternity past and present now. But in the incarnation, in His mediatorial work, in what they call the economy, uh, economic trinity, meaning the economy of salvation, when Christ takes on human flesh and He becomes, uh, takes, takes on a human body and on this earth, he submits himself to the Father in everything. And he does what he does by the power of the Spirit. And I think that's why Paul says uh, the head of Christ is God. Uh, the term Christ is pointing to uh, Christ's work as the Messiah, uh, as Israel's Messiah, the one who came in the flesh. The, the king come in the flesh. But all that to say, if Christ submitted to the Father and then was exalted, for any wife to believe that this position God has called her to is some low position and is not an honorable, honorable position, look, look at the incarnate Christ. And so we see that it is rooted in creation. Uh, last week, we also looked at Philippians 2. We're not going to go there this morning. Uh, just to see the glory of Christ humbling Himself, submitting Himself to take on human flesh, and even submitting Himself unto death, and then being exalted. And so... The important thing is the head speaks of authority, and, and fundamentally, as we'll see next week, uh, 
authority in three main areas, uh, leadership, provision, and protection. Uh, we'll get into that next week. Now let's look at the illustration. So if the reason is because the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, uh, now we get an analogy or an illustration. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Uh, there's no hidden meaning here. I think everyone can understand uh, what this means. You know, the church is to gladly rank themselves under the leadership of Christ. We ought to gladly submit to His leadership in our life, His provision in our life, His protection in our life. Do you want to get out from under that, church? Do we ever want to get out from Christ's leadership or from His provision for our sins or His protection? We would never want to get out of the headship of Christ over the church. And, and, and so the, the example of the church submitting to Christ is the example to the wives as to how wives should submit in everything uh, to their husbands. So the submission is, uh, if our submission to Christ is to be total and full on, the submission of wives is also to be total and full on. But then we look at the extent. It says, submit in everything to their husbands. So let's think about what in everything means. To submit in every mean, everything simply means that a wife's submission to her husband in the marriage encompasses the whole marriage, not just part of it. Wives are, and husbands are given different roles within the marriage, that's true. But the submission of a wife to a husband encompasses the whole of the marriage, not just a part of the marriage. Uh, Paul doesn't mean that there are absolutely no exceptions in regards to submission uh, of a wife to a husband, uh, as we can think of things like abuse or sin. Uh, Christ has not and would, and would never call a wife to submit herself to the abuse of her husband. Because remember, submission to your husband is as to the Lord, meaning you do it to reverence Christ. And it would never bring Christ's glory for a wife to submit to the abuse of her husband. In fact, it would dishonor Christ for her to do that. Honoring Christ would be to go to the authorities with the abuse and to go to the elders of the church and report such abuse. Unfortunately, often this doesn't happen. 
And when it doesn't happen, when a wife is being abused and it's not reported, Christ is dishonored. I want to show you something from Deuteronomy 22, beginning in verse 23. And and here the law is being laid out, and uh, what's in view here would be an engaged girl getting raped. And I want to show you a principle. And in verse 23, it says, if, a, if there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, And the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, they both get stoned because she didn't cry for help and because he violated his neighbor's wife. And then it says, so purge the evil from your midst. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die, but you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death, for this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. Because he met her in the open country, though though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. No punishment for the woman, because though she cried for help, there was no one to help her. All that to say, wives, no, you don't ever need to submit to an abusive husband. The Bible, Christ is not honored in that. In fact, to not get help would be to dishonor Christ, for you are made in His image, and you are valuable and not to be treated like that. Children, same thing. You should never be abused by your parents, by your teachers, by pastors, by anyone, physically or in an inappropriate way. And children, you need to tell a pastor or a police officer, or your parents, if, if someone does this, something like that to you, and it, it's not your parent, and they might threaten you to honor Jesus, you have to tell your parents. You have to tell somebody about it. That's what it means to honor Jesus. And parents, you need to talk to your children about this. Christ has to be bigger than any threat that some abuser would ever give to your children. Your children need to fear Christ more. They need to know what would please Christ. All right. And so we're talking about exceptions. The second exception after abuse would be a wife never needs to follow her husband into sin or into anything that the Lord objectively rejects. So if a husband tells his wife to sin and to do this certain thing, 
She must never do it. The husband could ask his wife to steal. The husband could ask his wife to lie about something or to not tell the church about this, not tell your brothers and sisters in Christ about this certain thing. It could be drunkenness, a wife doesn't need to follow her husband into drunkenness or debauchery. She doesn't need to submit to sexual sin. Pornography should never be brought into a marriage. Even when the couple's agreeing to do it together, it's sin, it's wrong. Don't submit to that. It should go without saying uh, orgies. Things like this. The Bible List, lists out. In Hebrews 13.4, the command is, let the marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And so when he says, wives, submit to your husbands in everything, what he's saying is in the whole of your marriage, this is a, a, a fact of the design of marriage. He's not saying in everything as in sin, abuse, in that sense. But here's the key, wives, and, and I think this is important to listen to because I think you can be tricked here. Just because your husband sins, and he most certainly does, often falling short of his high calling to love you as Christ loves the church and to lead you spiritually in the home, even though that'll be true, your husband will fall short, it is not a reason for a wife to reject the high calling Christ has given her in regards to her submission. See, you never need to sin if your husband calls you to sin. But if your husband sins, that doesn't get you out of what God has called you to. Let me give you an example. Let's think for a moment. Let's say a wife thinks in her head, my husband is blowing it. I'm sure that's never been thought by anyone in this room. My, my husband is blowing it here. He isn't leading biblically. He isn't choosing the best things for the family. Maybe it's in regards to family worship. Maybe it's in regards to education. Maybe it's in regards to sports or hobbies, etc. It could be a thousand things. A wife could be sitting there saying, I won't do this. I don't think this is good. I don't think it's good leadership. This isn't what I would do. So, when this happens, you could be tempted to think, I, in the name of Jesus Christ, am going to take over. He's failing. I'm going to do an honorable thing, and I am going to take over. I'm going to do it myself without Him. I've waited long enough. He's proven Himself unfaithful. I'm taking over. This can be a temptation to think this way. 
the problem with it is, is obviously it can be highly subjective. Also, your husbands will be judged for how your home was led, not you. He'll be either judged or rewarded. And you, wives, will be judged or rewarded with how you fulfilled your role in helping him do it. You see that? Not in how the family actually turns out. It's in the role of how you fulfilled the role that Christ has given you as a wife. And it makes sense to just take over. In one sense, it's like he hasn't proven himself. I don't see any sign of change. I don't see any sign of God working on his heart. Our children are growing up fast. I'm getting scared. I'm getting desperate. I'm just going to do it. I have to leave him behind. There's, there, there, there's nothing else to do. It's pragmatic. It makes sense. It seems right. But I'm saying it's not right to quit fulfilling the role God has called you to. It might mean your family is not led the way as good as it could have been led. That's true. That's true. But you're not going to stand before Christ on that, wives. You're going to stand before Christ on what God has called you to. So the first problem is that it, it, it can be highly subjective. You know, that's not the way I would do it. Well, you're never going to do it the way someone else would do it. That's, that's just a fact. But here's the second problem. Think about this. What is God objectively called wives to teach their families and their children and young women? In Titus 2, here's what we read in, in verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good. All right, our ears ought to perk up. What is this? They're to teach what is good. And so train young women to love their husbands and children. So let's say the wife just says, I'm done. I'm done. He's proven himself. It's over. But God has called you to train young women to love their husbands. You, you see how if you defect from your role, you then defect out in all the implications? And then it says, uh, <clears throat> they are to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So that's what God has called wives to teach their children. That's, that is an authority God has given you that you're going to be held accountable for. And how can you ever teach that if you've given up? within your own family. Your children can see if you're trying. They can see your husband's failures and sins. But they can be awed by the grace of God, how Christ has filled you 
when they see you, not neglecting the role God has called you to, even when it's very difficult. Even if your husband has failed in, uh, I should say especially, if your husband has failed in uh, major ways. And so it's important that a wife must not mistake her husband's sins uh, with her sins. No, you don't have to sin. If your husband's sinning, yes, you still have to fulfill your role God has called you to. Let me turn, turn to 1 Peter 3. We're just going to spend a second here, but I want to show it to you. Because the Bible presupposes, Peter presupposes talking to wives that are living with husbands that are failing in their biblical role of leadership. First Peter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conducts of their wives. You see that? He presupposes a husband that's not obeying the word, not doing what God has called him to. And she's still called to be subject to him. And and then he says, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, uh, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Then he says, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, here's what I'm going to tell you, wives. You're going to be tempted to think to get your husband's attention, it's going to be the outward. That's what the world tells you. If you're going to be insecure, you're going to be insecure about your outward beauty. But I'm here to tell you that the beauty that God loves, I'm going to argue, is the same beauty that most of your husbands are going to love much more than any physical beauty. And it would be a respectful, pure conduct, a gentle and quiet spirit. God loves this. And Peter says this might be the thing that God uses. It might be the self-sacrificial, Christ-like love seen in his wife that could teach him about the self-sacrificial love that He needs to be displaying. And look at verse 5. For this is how the holy women uh, who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Verse 5 is so important. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God. It doesn't say they hoped in their husbands. They hoped in God. That's how they submitted to their husbands. Because their hope was in God. And then Sarah is given as an example. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. A wife could say, it's so frightening to live with a husband that isn't making the best decisions for our children. And we have such a short time and 
we got to do this and we got to do that and I got to overcome what God has said to make it happen. Peter would say, hope in God. That's what Sarah did as she saw Abraham sinning. Hope in God. Trust God with your children. Trust God that what your children need to see far more than your husband's perfect leadership would be you taking your role that Christ has given you seriously. All right? Someone might say, what about the issue of conscience? A wife's supposed to submit to her husband. What about conscience? What if her conscience can't go with this type of education or their conscience can't? Well, it is true that a wife must be able to have a clear conscience. For anything done apart from uh, faith is sin. A, A wife must never sin personally, but here, once again, what has God called you to do? What has God given you to do? You need to have a clear conscience in what God has called you to do. But let's say a husband and wife, I'd say 99% of the time, the husband should never have to cast the final vote as to what the family is going to do. Because two people filled with the Spirit of God, a husband saying, I need my wife. It's not good that a man should be alone. God has given her to me to help me lead, which means I don't know it all. And so I listen well. And husband and wife should be able to come to decisions over and over and over and over and over again in agreement. But there will be times where there's just, they're going to have to agree to disagree. What does the wife do then? How can you have a clear conscience then? Here's my, this would be my example thing you could say. A wife may say to her husband, I would do something different. But out of reverence for Christ, I will submit to your leadership here. I'll pray for you to have wisdom as you lead us. I've spoken clearly to you about what I think. And so I have a clear conscience before God and what God has called me to do to help you. Now I must trust the sovereign and providential hand of God and put my hope in Him as I submit to your leadership. You come to the point of conflict? Wives, you're supposed to speak. You're supposed to help your husband. There's an agreement to disagree. What a reverence for Christ. I'll pray for you, husband, to do what's best. And I think you can have a clear conscience in fulfilling the role God has given you. All right. Real quick in closing, I gave you some practical words, wives, to be thinking of. What does submission look like? I gave you four last week. Respectful, nurturing, supportive, patiently enduring. Uh, Not just giving up. I'm going to give you some more, and we're going to kind of be rapid fire. So you can ponder these uh, as you go home this week. Number five is encouraging. Encouraging your husband. If you discourage him, if you tear him down, if you slander him, 
You guys are one flesh. You have one mission. You're just tearing yourself down. Six, secure. Wives ought to be secure in Christ. If you're not secure in Christ, you'll become bitter. If you don't see what Christ has done for you wives by pure grace, and you try to find your security in your husband, you'll have to punish him. You'll become bitter against him for not, you know, you fill in the blank. Um, gentle, we saw in the first Peter text. Gentle, the next word is quiet, the gentle, quiet spirit. That doesn't mean you don't speak to your husband, but it means you have an attitude uh, of, of trusting in God in submission uh, to your husband. Uh, courageous. We also saw in First Peter that the wife ought not be frightened by anything. A wife is to be courageous as she finds her hope in God. Ten, industrious. You can read Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. You see the Proverbs 31 woman. It might be really convicting to look at, wives, but as husbands, we're not going to feel real sorry for you because our example is Christ. So, so you're given a model of the supreme woman. And, and one of the things you see evident in there, she's a hard worker. Uh, she's industrious. She's homemaking. She works hard in the home, nurturing the children and the family. And it's not that the husband, he has leadership over the family in the home, but the wife is, is hour-wise, they're much more often nurturing and, and raising up her children, uh, teaching what is good. We already talked about that. And then in Titus 2, kind, just a simple word kind. So this is a lot of stuff we looked at the last three weeks. And the reason why we spent so much time and we're going to spend so much time on husbands is this is so important for our church. It's so important for the honor of Christ. It's so important for Aberdeen, our marriages. Father, we thank you that you have said so much about this beautiful thing that you created called marriage. Father, we know that sin has brought a lot of pain and destruction to marriages. But Father, we thank you that we're not without hope, that we can be filled with the Spirit of Christ. And... Uh, that Christ's love can flow through us and we can uh, grow in, in our uh, love for Christ and the roles He has given us. Father, this is what we pray. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.